Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the 10 Years Hence program. My name is Patrick Gibbons. I'm an adjunct faculty member in Mendoza's Fanning Business Center, or I'm sorry, Center for Business Communications. And I'm filling in today for Jim O'Rourke, who, as you may know, is on travel. A couple of quick administrative notes before we get started. I'd like you to please join me in silencing your mobile devices, if you would, so that we don't have any unwanted interruptions during the presentation. And second, I would ask that when we get to Q&A, you wait until the microphone reaches you before you ask your question. We have an online streaming audience. We want to make sure they hear your questions. Today, our focus will shift from global pandemics and healthcare to some of the global trends shaping the long-term future. And we're honored to have with us as our speaker, Maria Lingen-Rikoff. Maria is director of the Strategic Futures Group at the National Intelligence Council, where she leads the U.S. intelligence community's assessment of global dynamics. Among her duties is producing the Quadrennial Global Trends Report, which I think some of you may be familiar with. It's a very influential document that looks long big issues out there in the environment. Maria began her 31-year career with the CIA as an expert in Middle East studies. She has since held a number of very senior-level positions within the intelligence community. Her leadership roles include serving as chief of the CIA's Red Cell, and I think some of you may be familiar with the term Red Team. I think she may explain a little different between Red Team and Red Cell. She also was founder and director of the CIA's Strategic Insight Group and research director for the Middle East. She was one of the director of National Intelligence Exceptional Analysts in 2008 and 2009, and the agency's fellow at the Brookings Institution in 2016 and 2017. She is a member of the Senior Analytics Service, the Senior Intelligence Service, and she holds degrees from the University of Chicago and the University of Denver. Please join me in welcoming Maria Langen Recall. Good morning, and thank you, Pat. I appreciate that introduction, and I'm really grateful for the invitation to be here this morning and to be part of this impressive speaker series looking 10 years hence although we're gonna to try to look even further out into the future this morning. So let me start with a little background on the intelligence community, the National Intelligence Council, and what these units do, so you can better understand why we do a product like Global Trends. And second, let me also start by apologizing. The pollen has really gotten in my voice this week, so I'm a little bit hoarse. Hopefully it'll hold out for the entire session. So. We hear about the intelligence community a lot, especially this week, as we are dealing with some unprecedented leaks that are occupying much of our attention. But not everyone knows exactly what that means when we say the intelligence community, or we often say the IC for short. Who's in it? What do we do? What's the mission? So the mission of the intelligence community is to provide timely, rigorous, impartial, and insightful intelligence and support to inform national security decision-making, and to protect our nation and its interests. This is actually the latest language that we just drafted for the director. The IC informs policy, but it doesn't advocate for policy, and it doesn't make policy. The IC also does not cover the domestic United States. We are looking out into the world to help tell our policymakers what's happening that they need to wor be worried about, but what could happen in the future? The IC is comprised of 18 units. Some of those are large standalone agencies you've probably heard of. NSA, the CIA, DI. Some of those are smaller units within the Department of Energy or the Department of Treasury. Also, all of the military components have their own intelligence service. So all of those come together to be the 18 units that make up the intelligence community. The DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, where I sit now and report to Director of Real Haynes, was established in 2005 as an umbrella over these 18 to set strategic direction, to help direct resources. And the NIC, although older, the National Intelligence Council, has now moved under the DNI. So let me tell you about the National Intelligence Council, which with everything in government, you have to come up with an acronym. So we lovingly call it the NIC reports directly to the Director of National Intelligence. And the NIC has two roles. First, it serves as the intelligence community's center for long-term strategic analysis. Sort of, I think of it as the IC's think tank. 
Its second role is the direct interface between the policy process happening at the National Security Council and the rest of the intelligence community. So I spend a lot of my time going to meetings at the NSC and then bringing that back to the community to see how can the various components support to, more, to support that decision-making process, inform that decision-making process. The NIC dates back to 1979, but its mission goes back even further. The Office of National Estimates was really the origin of it, and that goes back to 1947. So who sits at the NIC and what does that look like? So the NIC actually is composed of senior experts um, from agencies around the community. So no one is, spends their career there. We all rotate in from somewhere else for two, three, four years at a time. We also have those experts who come from the outside, um, those who come from think tanks, people you probably know names like Fiona Hill or Joe Nye, rotated in from academia, came in to support the NIC. So we have NIOs, there's 16 of us. We're the senior officers covering functional and regional portfolios. And then we each have a team of deputies and then we reach out across the community of those 18 agencies. We're not the only organization doing big strategic thinking within the government, but our mission is unique because our job is to pull together the full community. At those times when we need to make big calls and speak with one voice, we spend a lot of time bringing those groups together to find the language that we can all agree on. And that can often be the most time consuming part of the process. Sorry, I'm gonna probably sit here most of the time for this talk this morning because I brought a lot of notes and a lot of data and I will never remember all of it. So I apologize if I look down from time to time. The NIC produces a lot of different types of products, but one in particular is probably most well-known. Some have been released, some have been leaked, called the National Intelligence Estimate. The estimate is the most well-known it represents the U.S. intelligence community's most authoritative and coordinated written assessment on a specific national security issue. Um, thing, ones that have been in the news a lot over decades has been like the call on WMD in Iraq. But more recently, Director Haynes has pushed through a transparency initiative. She wants the American people to know what we do, to know how we support your security and your safety. So the degree we can, when we publish one of these or even other documents, her first question is, what can you tell the American people? What can you release publicly? My team's done actually two of those estimates in the last couple of years, the national security implications of climate change, um, which actually drew on some of the work of folks here in the room, and the national security implications of COVID. Those both have an unclassified version that sits on dni.gov. You can pull it up on your phones right now and look at them. Those issues tend to be a little easier to have unclassified or declassified than some of the other ones. But there is a real push to have greater transparency. These works are estimative, not just in name, but in intent and in focus. We don't want to look at just what's happening now, but we want to explore what's going to happen in two, three, or four years so we can prepare our policymakers to make the best possible decisions. So that's a lot of background on the IC and the NIC, but I thought it was a good place to ground this conversation. Now I'm gonna to turn to why I think I was invited here today, and that's to talk about our effort called Global Trend. I'll try to cover three things in Global Trends this morning. First, I'm gonna tell you the background, what it is and why we do it. Second, I'm gonna go into our kind of overarching argument of the last time we did this, which the cover is up on screen now, and what that looked like, what were our big findings. And then to the degree we have time, and again, I probably brought too much data, I'm gonna dig into some of those chapters and tell you some of the key findings, some of the assessments we made, and show you some of that kind of up on screen. So let's start with a little history about global trends. Every four years since 1997, the National Intelligence Council has published a report that we call Global Trends. It is an unclassified assessment of the key trends and uncertainties that are likely to shape the long-term future. The report is timed specifically for the U.S. presidential election to give an incoming or returning president that strategic landscape of what they're likely to face, not just in two or four years, but 20 years. Um, that perfect moment where they're hopefully not occupied with the next crisis of the day and have a chance to sit back and think as they go about the business of making national security strategy. 
the goal of this global trends effort is not to predict the future. We're very careful to say we can never do that. Instead, it is to help policymakers see beyond the horizon and prepare for an array of possible futures. So what decisions might they make now that could best position the United States to be resilient for any of these possible outcomes? Global Trends is unique for the IC because of its unclassified nature. It's unclassified from start to finish. It's not something that we do classified and then actually create a new version. It's also different because we have always published it publicly. This means that one, as we do it, we can go out around the world and talk to lots of different people. High school students in Manila, college students in Tokyo, think tanks in Brussels, activist groups in Bangladesh. You know, those are the kinds of conversations we're having because we want to see how people who are living in, the, in their own environments see their futures as well. We also consult extensively with academics around the United States. Almost name the major university. We've probably called on some of those professors to say, what, are, what does your research show us? There are so many topics to cover. We know we can't do this by ourselves. But one of the challenges of a project of this magnitude is how do you take all these ideas? How do you take all this data? How do you take all this modeling and tell a coherent, persuasive story about the future that's useful, but at the same time is not trying to make point predictions? So we, in the last edition that was published two years ago, had two sort of organizing principles. One, we wanted to identify the broad forces that are setting the contours of the future. Second, we wanted to explore how populations and leaders at every level will respond to these forces. So with those ordering principles in mind, we built the analysis like this. We started with what we called structural forces. We identified four very broad areas to look at because they're very foundational in scope. Demographics and population issues, environment and climate change, economics and technology. We selected these because they are universal in scope. They're shaping for every country and every community. We also chose them because in many cases, we can make projections. We can use existing data and modeling to kind of project where these forces are likely to be going forward. Second, we moved on to examine how these factors and others not only inter intersect with each other, but how will people react to them and engage with them? We call these our emerging dynamics. I find looking back at this publication, it's a little bit more descriptive. It has to kind of start with how people are interacting with them today and say how we think those are going to continue going forward. And then finally, as we do with every good Global Trends product, and this was the seventh edition, we use scenarios because the future is plural. Those same factors, those responses from people go in a variety of different ways. And again, if we can explore different manifestations of them and think, what do we do as a U.S. government, as a people, to make ourselves prepared for that variety of futures? But to do that, we first have to imagine them. So that becomes the last part of this. So before I dig into the details of these little sections, let me describe some of the overarching arguments. And I'll start with the one that became our title. As we constructed this analysis and spent a lot of time talking to different experts, certain characteristics and themes kept reappearing. They almost left off the pages of the work we were doing. And these form the basis of our central argument, which is reflected in this title, A More Contested World. Over the next 20 years, we see a future that is more contested at every level from more heated debates about the foundations of our societies to greater political volatility in states of all types and in all regions, and to an increasing U.S.-China rivalry, greater challenges to the international order, and growing risk of additional interstate conflict, even potentially between great powers. So let me unpack this by going into the five themes we identify. First, Shared global challenges are becoming more frequent and intense, rapidly crossing borders and often without a direct human agent behind them. These are not the challenges we were talking about 20 years ago where we were very focused on terrorism and counterterrorism. That's a challenge with a human agent directly behind the act that is threatening us. These challenges, and many are well known and talked about all the time on this campus, 
climate change, disease, financial crises. There are humans behind them, but several steps back often or over many years. And what I, we think is less well understood is how these may intersect with each other and cascade into new global challenges. We'll unpack this more later. The second theme we identified was one of fragmentation. Many aspects of the world are increasingly fragmented. I don't think I need to, to prove this, but as the world has grown more connected by things that we thought were bringing us together, right? Technology, trade, movement of people, all those aspects of globalization, that very connectivity has really started to do the opposite. The second order effect is actually dividing people in countries. One realm we see this in is the growing fault lines in societies along identity issues, exacerbated by siloed information systems and competing versions of the truth. But we also see that if you look at the global trading environment, we see a much more fragmented global trading system. I don't think there's been a global trade agreement since the creation of the WTO with a proliferation of much more kind of regional and bilateral trading arrangements. Our third theme and that builds on the first two, is that is the scale of these transnational challenges and the implications of fragmentation collide, they are driving something we called a looming disequilibrium, a mismatch between existing and future challenges and the existing institutions we have now at both the state and international level to manage them. It's really a mismatch between what people want to need and what leaders and institutions are able and willing to provide. It's gonna manifest in a lot of different ways. And again, we're gonna dig into this later in the chapter. But one manifestation that stood up out to us repeatedly was the rise in protest movements around the world. We think about the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening as this moment where we saw this eruption of protests across the Middle East. But really that was just the start of what has been more than a decade of a steady climb in protest movements. It's risen 15-fold, depending on your data set and how you count protest movements, which comes up. That's a lot of debate. Um, but it really highlights the dissatisfaction with governance and governing systems around the world. This brings me all the way back to the fourth theme that became the title, contestation, and the core argument that we saw across all these levels of analysis because we see these conditions combining to produce this greater contestation. When I say this, giving talks, and I've given this talk quite a bit, although not recently, people mostly think that I'm talking about geopolitics. I'm talking about what's happening between countries. And that obviously is true, and it's probably much more true today than two years ago when we first came out with this analysis. But really, we first started to identify this theme of contestation by looking within communities and within states, those kind of rigorous debates about who we are and what we want to be. So again, that contestation at every level. And finally, as we move into this future world and we deal with the challenges I've described already, we think adaptation will be an imperative. It will be a premium. It will be a key source of advantage and power going forward. Those communities, those states, and even those Global institutions that can adapt to this rapidly changing world are the ones that are going to thrive going forward. There we go. So now let's dig into some of this data and how we came up with this and start with the four structural forces, which I'll probably spend a little more time here than in the other sections, but it's so rich with data. And I think some of it is just, once you hear it, it really brings it to life for you because this is the foundation of the future. And demographics is the one we almost always start with. And it's gotten a lot of attention lately because some of the data we thought we knew, even a couple of years ago, has been overturned because we realized data coming out of some countries is really not that good, either because they're not collecting or potentially they just don't want to report some of their data. So the first one, demographics, is the area where usually we're most confident in making projections. The global population is continuing to grow but at a much slower rate than in past decades. And most of that growth will come from relatively poor countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia. And those populations are gonna be primarily youthful and urban. You know, 
For instance, Sub-Saharan Africa's population currently is predicted to double by 2050, with a median age by then of only about 22, maybe age 23, which is the below the threshold typically associated with higher levels of human development. And while Sub-Saharan, while the subcontinent, South Asia, is already starting to slow a little bit, it also is going to have this huge, useful population. These governments are going to struggle to meet the expectations of a large, urban, youthful, and by then, very technologically connected citizens. This is likely to increase political instability, at least political volatility going forward. On the other hand, developed countries and some emerging economies will see their populations peak and start to decline. Many have already started declining, but many more will be declining by 2040. For instance, South Korea will have a, a median age. Now, remember, I said Sub-Saharan Africa will have a median age of 22. South Korea is going to have a median age of 53. China also has a, an increasingly growing population of over 65 adults. Right now, their population is somewhere 175, 180 million. By 20, where, where did we go? Did we go to 2050 on this one? Got to see my slide. By 2043. They're going to be pushing 400 million people over the age of 65. Now, to put that in context, the population of the United States is like 340 and change, right? They're going to have more people over the age of 65 than we have people. Now, let me throw another statistic about China at you. Birth rates. Been in the news a lot because we've learned some new things about birth rates in China. Obviously, they went from one-child policy to two-child policy to three-child policy. They're now trying to stimulate population growth. You can look at 1990, their population, their fertility rate was at 2.3%. That's above replacement levels, which is somewhere around 2.1. By 2000, they had dropped to 1.2. Now they're reporting that their fertility rate is 1.1, almost half of replacement values. Their fertility rate has dropped 50% just since 2016. So 400 million approaching people over 65 with a very low fertility rate. Not as low as South Korea, which has the lowest in the world. But again, you combine those two things. This will lead to a contraction in working age populations and will lead to great need for caregivers to take care of this aging population. And a population that many of them either have no children or just one child to sort of look after them. Latin America, North Africa are somewhere in the middle here. They are work approaching that area of a high working age population. They might see a dividend from that. It's going to be depend on job creation as well as, as education going forward. So these population changes are happening while more and more of us are also moving to cities. I think this is my urban one. In poor countries, the city population will increase from a billion to 2.5 billion people during this time. And while most cities have long been seen as a, course, as a source of jobs, upward mobility, education, better infrastructure, poor countries are potentially going to be stuck in kind of a poverty trap with potentially insufficient skilled jobs, poor transportation, potentially not the infrastructure to deal with this. And many of these large cities are located on coastlines, which are more susceptible to climate change. So you could be looking at kind of slum-like urban areas. So these stressors will place headwinds on the tremendous growth that we've seen in human development over the last 20 to 30 years. Over this time period, if we look back, 1.2 billion people have been lifted out of poverty. 1.5 billion people over the last couple of decades have moved into the middle class. But we think we're get, those kind of improvements are going to be much harder to realize in education, in health, in poverty re reduction. Potentially, we're going to see slower economic growth. We're going to have these aging populations. How do you maintain that kind of progress? And in the last couple of years, COVID alone has dealt a real blow to a lot of the progress we were seeing. I'll add one more here because I think you're actually going to hear about it next week. You're going to have a talk on migration. Again, migration, another big pattern. 
the push and pull factor that influence whether people want to leave their homes and people don't generally want to leave their homes are only going to increase. In 2020, more than 270 million people were living in a different country from where they were born, up from 170 million 20 years prior. The majority are moving for greater economic prospects and to send home those remittances. But other issues going forward are likely to push people to flee. If we're talking more contestation, we're thinking more violent conflict, potentially persecution, but also natural disasters. Right now, most kind of climate refugees move within their own countries and they try to go back after whatever disaster. That may not be the case going forward. And right now we really don't have the kind of global structure, established norms to deal with that kind of move. So speaking of climate change, let's go into the environment. That's our sex and structural factor. And we spent a lot more time in this report than any previous report really thinking about the long-term consequences of our warming climate. And it's a pretty clear trend line. And unfortunately, things are getting worse. Global temperatures are already up 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And we're on pace to surpass the first of the Paris Agreement goals, which is to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. We're probably going to pass that by 2030. Current trajectory, hard to shift gears at this point. But we're also facing the potential that we could hit two degrees above pre-industrial levels by mid-century. I know there are people here sitting in this room who know more about this than I do. As a result, the physical impacts are increasing in speed, frequency, intensity. We're talking about those things all the time. The rate of sea level rise has doubled, and 99% of our coral reefs will face long-term degradation once we hit that two-degree level. These impacts coupled with poor resource management are going to exacerbate a lot of the other things I'm talking about. Exacerbate issues of human security, food, water, energy, health systems. No country is going to be immune, but some can adapt better than others. As countries ramp up these efforts to mitigate emissions and adapt to impacts, debates are going to increase. Within, between countries, what do we prioritize? Who pays? If you paid attention to the last COP meeting, in Egypt. That was a big discussion as many countries that, you know, didn't contribute early on to the carbon emissions are now suffering many of the biggest consequences. They're increasingly arguing that developed countries should pay more for climate-caused damages and help them to leapfrog their energy systems. My climate specialist has actually spent some time on campus, wanted me to highlight a couple of things we didn't put in the report last time. But he's spending a lot of time focused on as we consider ways of mitigating and adapting. The first is that efforts to remove global carbon dioxide from the atmosphere will be critical to stabilizing and eventually reducing temperatures. So not just our energy transition, but actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. A lot of the technology for that is very nascent. It hasn't been scaled up yet. We're a long way from being able to do that at scale and to store it or to even find something to use it for. The second thing is that as it gets warmer and the impacts get worse, states are gonna look for quick fixes. Things like solar radiation modification techniques to mask the symptoms of climate change by reflecting sun back up into the atmosphere and artificially cooling the planet. But again, a technique that's gonna have to be done over and over again to maintain temperatures down. And when we think about these emerging technologies, right now, there are no rules of the game. There's no governance system to guide states or individuals or companies in how to use these. And we also haven't done enough research to think about the second and third order consequences of some of these. So now I'll move on to economics, which is a little bit of a riskier place to make long-term projections as probably those in this building know far better than I do. I listen to Bloomberg News driving into work every morning and the discussions about inflation, is it transitory, is it not? Economic predictions, even going out weeks, tends to be a precarious place to be. And we know that. It's highly uncertain and it's highly dependent on government policies, which also are hard to predict. But there's a few conditions that we thought we could use to project out some of the challenges going forward. And the first has to do with sovereign debt. Since the 2008 global financial crisis, national debt levels have risen in almost every country. 
and went up considerably due to government spending to deal with the effects of, of COVID-19. These debt levels for some countries will, can be manageable, particularly advanced economies and those who could denominate the debt in their own currency. But emerging and developed economies that borrowed externally are under increased risk of debt crises, and we've already seen it start to happen when we think of Sri Lanka. So you can see the levels of debt if we go back to 2007, before the global financial crisis, this is as a percentage of GDP. Now look at the map from last year, and we're up there. So that is national debt as a percentage of GDP. Reds and orange, much worse than the cooler colors. High inflation, interest rates are adding to their vulnerability. Just this January, the IMF reported that 37% of the world's 70 low-income countries were in or at high risk of debt distress. And that's just thinking about debt. Now, I mentioned earlier the global trading system becoming more fragmented, I've already said, leading to a rise in protectionist trade policies as countries are seeking to preserve jobs and consider more sectors and technology as key components of their national security. As we look forward, as far as what that environment's going to look like, I think these things are going to combine to shift economic influence in the world and to bring that to a broader range of global players, ranging from mega corporations and countries with less open economies than ours. That means that countries means to contribute to some of our shared challenges that I talked about when it comes to some of the demographic issues or when it comes to climate and environmental issues, they're gonna have fewer resources to do this. And finally, the area I feel least comfortable with, but fortunately I have a lot of technology experts to draw upon across the US government is technology. And we know this is going to matter a lot to the future, whether we want to get science fiction-y or just really think about a mainline projection. As we thought about technology, realizing that we didn't want to pinpoint individual breakthroughs, we looked at some individual fields of transformative technologies, such as artificial intelligence, smart materials and manufacturing, and especially advanced biotechnology. But we also wanted to look at those trends and those implications that stretch over the tech landscape. What's that broader landscape going to look like over 20 years? Where do we see a convergence of science and technologies coming together to be able to push one field faster than it would have alone? Biotech is one of those areas if we look at better data, faster computing, as well as some of the breakthroughs in the biological sciences, when you combine those have really enabled our rapid advances in biotech. We think the pace and impact of technological development will increase. This will transform human experiences and will offer the potential to tackle challenges such as climate change and disease in new and impactful ways. But like these other things, second and third order implications matter. They're gonna create new tensions, disruptions, there are going to be ethical and social disparities. Thinking through some of these technologies and the degree to which they're going to challenge things like privacy, that they're potentially going to increase inequality within our societies, within our countries, and between our countries. We have to think about those things as we're considering stability going forward. We also see a much more hyper-connected world as billions and billions of connected devices are brought online. Without a doubt, and again, given this building, you guys know better than I do, this is going to create improvements in productivity, new efficiencies, new ways of manufacturing. But again, it also comes with challenges that could have some profound social change that we need to consider now. Because there's the intended use of a technology, there's the hoped-for use of a technology, but there's also those unexpected and unintended uses and consequences of technologies. And there's going to be global competition over those core elements of tech supremacy. We're going to be competing over talent, knowledge, data, markets. This race for supremacy is inextricably linked to our strategic competition and geopolitics between the U.S. and China going forward. That might have been a little harder to prove when we first started saying this two years ago. Now, decoupling is all over the news all the time. Again, very linked to government policy, but the move toward ensuring, I can say it, and friendshoring are going to be key. And what does that look like going forward? I don't think any of us really know. So let me move as I'm checking my time here. 
um, on just what we call the emerging dynamics. Again, how do we think about these kind of four areas of structural forces? How are they going to interact? But then how are people responding to those? I feel like these sections are a little bit closer to the present because it's a bit harder to forecast out. But thinking about how they're already impacting, I think is, can illuminate some potentials for that long-term future. So we started at the level of people, individuals, their communities, their society. The best source is really to look at a range of public opinion data. And there's a lot of out there, even looking globally in, in different countries and in different types of government systems. And there's large variation and we recognize that. But there are some key trends that seem to go across region, government type, and level of development. Large segments of the global population are increasingly pessimistic. They're pessimistic about the future and they're distrustful of institutions and governments. And Edelman Trust Barometer is always a really interesting one to look at. And they've had some interesting findings even in the last couple of years. Trust in government fell in 17 of 27 countries they surveyed in 21. And publics for the very first time in their 21 survey indicated that they placed greater trust in business than in governments or in NGOs. And again, the next year when they ran the survey, it so, showed very similar findings. It showed an 11-point gap between trust in business and trust in government. This actually brings up a lot of interesting questions about the role of businesses going forward. Now, what does this reflect? It probably reflects a combination of things, right? Always. Rising and unmet expectations among populations, but also anxiety about many of these rapid changes I've already talked about. The rapid technological, societal, social changes that we've all experienced and that we're experiencing really in every corner of the globe. People, as a result of that anxiety and pessimism, we've started to see are gravitating to familiar. They're finding like-minded groups for community and for security. This includes ethnic, religious, cultural identities, even ones around interests and causes like environmentalism. The combination of these hardening identities and what we've all experienced, much more siloed information systems, which are becoming more siloed every day, we're exposing fault lines in our societies and a fragmentation and an undermining of what we used to think of as civic nationalism. Rising income inequality within countries, more, especially in the developed world, during the last several years has been escalating these social tensions. It's provided fertile ground for some world leaders and disaffected groups to promote much more exclusionary attitudes. And we see that in a lot of the data. So this is a really nice segue to think about what's happening within states. The central story of this section is that the relationships, and I said this earlier in our themes, between societies and their governments in every region, and again, of every type of government, from autocracies to, demo to full-fledged democracies, are likely to face persistent tensions because of this mismatch. On the one hand, we have publics that are disaffected they're demanding more. And because of two to three decades of improve, of rapid human development, these populations are also more empowered. And on the other hand, we have governments that are under much greater strain. They're under strain from debt. They're under strain from dealing with the recent health crises. They're under strain because of shocks from climate change and rising prices and inflation. So governments under strain, Populations now are more aware of what's out there in the world and what more, and these two are not matching up. So what could happen as we look forward because of these dynamics within states? So we took three potentials and they really build on each other. One is greater political volatility. Um, again, manifesting in lots of different ways from protest movements to the rise of populist leaders, to populist parties, to political violence, even internal conflict and civil wars. Now, another interesting statistic that came out after we did this original analysis. In 2021, the world had almost three times more coup attempts than the average coup attempts by year for the preceding decade. And the attempts, the coup attempts, were three times as likely to succeed as those in the previous decade, reflecting this widespread frustration with the poor performance of civilian governments. Now, also happening at this time, 
has been an erosion of democracy. This has been occurring worldwide since 2011. The level of democracy enjoyed by the average global citizen in 2021 was down to 1989 levels. So again, before the fall of the Soviet Union, before the fall of many of the authoritarian governments associated with it, that's where 2021 was. Between 2017 and 2021, the number of democracies declined from about 91 to 83, and only 30% of the population of the world is living in what we would call a democracy at the close of 21. Now, we've seen a little uptick in 2022, which we've attempted to explain what's happened in the past year. A lot of it, we think the difference in the measurement is because some countries are lifting some of their COVID restrictions. So increasing some freedoms. So we've seen a little bit of a rise, but again, you can see the numbers if you go back to 2010 and going down and you can see where it takes us back to. I, I think if we look at that, it draws into question what's going to happen with governance going forward. Who will provide governance? People are looking for alternative sources of governance and provision of services within their own communities. Sometimes that's just devolving more to down to a local level because populations trust their local leaders more than they trust their national leaders. So we're seeing more influential city governments, but we're also seeing alternative providers of some of those services who are coming from more private sector locations than actual governments. So again, alternative provision of governance. So this will take me to my last kind of level of analysis. And frankly, where we spend a lot of time very recently talking, and that's at the level of the international system and geopolitics. The international, if we're going to look out 10, 20, even 30 years in the international system, I think we're fairly safe to say that no single state is likely to position, is likely to be positioned to dominate across all regions and all domains. And a broader range of actors will compete to shape that international system but potentially attempting to achieve narrower goals. We, I came of age in the workforce in the 90s. I lived through the unipolar moment. We have moved from that position, not to really a bipolar system now, but much more to a multipolar system. Governments across the world have greater agency than they had in years past. So even if we're looking at two very large powers in the U.S. and China, the world that we see evolving looks very different than the Cold War from the 50s to, say, 1990. At that time, a lot of governments didn't have the capacity. They didn't have the development levels to stay independent of those two very strong gravitational pulls. This is a different world than that time. The development of more globalized, interconnected international system has resulted in more states and also more non-government actors having agency to make choices and to exert influence in the international system. And many of these states are trying to capitalize, I think, on that kind of strategic competition that we are seeing between the great powers to carve out their own influence within the system which I think is going to take us, I debate this with a whole range of international relations scholars all the time. And there are a lot of different views on this. So I'm giving kind of our consensus. But that's likely to create a very different world than we experienced either in the Cold War or that we've experienced in the last 30 years since then. The tensions are likely to remain dominant feature of geopolitics. Again, a more contested world over the coming decade. Our rivalry with China will continue to be multidimensional but increasingly focused on who shapes the global norms, the rules, the institutions that are going to underpin our international order. Other major powers, even regional powers and non-state actors will be playing in this system. They also are gonna be able, looking to shape this context, shape these rules, shape these norms. As we are dealing with these challenges I describe in structural forces, whether we're thinking about climate change, we're thinking about new types of migration and new refugees, we're thinking about how to deal with increasing sovereign debt for countries, the rules and the norms of the system are going to matter more and more. And there are so many places where they're largely non-existent at this point. So this is going to be a world of competition 
and contestation over shaping those rules and those dynamics. I think because of that, and I won't spend much time on this graphic, but the chance of interstate conflict, I think has only gone up. Call this our teeter-totter graphic because we looked at those conditions and those forces that are likely to lead to greater conflict, mostly between major powers, but also other states and those that are the countervailing forces against it. You can see where we came out. And we did this two years ago. So Russia had not moved into Ukraine for a second time at the time we were looking at that. So as we think about that system, that strategic competition is going to be multifaceted. And I think we have to think about it in every domain and every type of interaction, ranging from things that we thought of as traditional kind of soft power and influence all the way to hard power, everything in between is going to be levels of competition going forward. Okay, so that sort of set the ground for kind of what our world looks like. I will end with a really brief description of our scenarios. As with every global trends, it's really important to imagine different ways the world can go. I raised a lot of challenges, but they can unfold in different ways. The structural forces, how people respond to them, it's highly uncertain. So we tried to develop what I would call five kind of plausible and illustrative scenarios for the way the world could evolve going forward. So we organized our scenarios around three key uncertainties. There's lots of ways to do scenarios out there. Companies do them, governments do them. I spent a lot of time talking to other methodologists who do scenarios. None are perfect. We did a bunch of different exercises. Ultimately, we overlaid them on each other. But we started with three key uncertainties or questions. One, how bad are those looming global challenges really going to be over the next couple of decades? Two, how will states and non-state actors choose to engage in the world? Is it going to be more cooperative? Is it going to be more confrontational? And what do states, particularly the major powers, with all of those states that now have greater agency in the system, choose to prioritize? Are they prioritizing security? Are they prioritizing economic growth? Are they prioritizing human development? Something completely different. And then we tried to answer those to develop, again, five illustrative scenarios. About five minutes to go through those. I'll just name them really quickly. Separate silos. It outlines a multipolar scenario. We imagined a decoupling that fragments the world into several self-contained economic and security blocks centered on the U.S., China, the EU, Russia, and a couple of regional powers. These blocks are focused on self-sufficiency, resiliency, defense to guard against vulnerabilities from the global challenges, from connectivity, and from each other. The second we looked at, we called a renaissance of democracy. Maybe this is a little bit unipolar light. The U.S. and our democratic allies lead a resurgence of open democracy. We're benefiting from technological advances. This raises incomes, quality of life. Authoritarian rivals are floundering in this world. They are not lack of innovation, lack of creativity is stifling their growth, democracy on the rise. In contrast, a world adrift, the international system is directionless, chaotic, and volatile as the effort to establish rules, norms, and institutions to manage these challenges are just really ignored. And countries are beset with lots of internal challenges that are keeping countries really inwardly focused. So countries are not focused outside to manage these global challenges. In competitive coexistence, the U.S. and China prioritize economic growth and restore a robust trading relationships. So we actually reverse course from where we are now. We're competing in other realms, but we're prioritizing economic growth and prosperity. And so we are not decoupling our economies. We compete in other places, but again, we compete but get along. And finally, what we thought at the time was the most radical scenario we called tragedy and mobilization. This is really something we thought of as the transformative scenario in which a global food catastrophe, which is brought on by kind of a combination of climate change dynamics and overfishing and policies like that, and see a depletion of fish as well as challenges to agriculture simultaneously prompts a broad, bottom-up coalition to manage some of these global challenges. 
We built this to be really catastrophic because we were sitting in the midst of COVID at the time this was happening. And we thought, wow, this is one of the bigger global challenges we faced in decades. And the world's not coming together to manage it. So if we were going to have something that would galvanize the world, it actually has to be bigger than COVID. It has to be worse than COVID. And it has to affect every country to somehow bring us together to fight those challenges. There's a lot more detail in those. I see I'm coming up on an hour, so I will stop there from talking about those. This is a, it was an interesting ride building this report and kind of keeping it alive in the two years since then. As I said, we do this not to predict the future. We do this to imagine how are those forces we're facing today and human choices at various levels from all of us in our societies to the leaders of the great powers, how do those decisions affect which of those five trajectories or countless other possibilities? Which path does it set us on? If we don't think about how those choices could set us on those paths, we can't prepare for them. And that's the point of doing this. And we do this report and make it unclassified so people can think about it in classrooms across the United States. Our president sitting in the White House, and I know he having discussed the report with him myself, is fully aware of these findings. But also, we've had the chance to discuss this with student groups and governments around the world. And so hopefully, by thinking about the future, by imagining both the good possibilities and the major challenges we see ahead, we are better positioned. We can make the United States and our world stronger and more resilient for those challenges of the future. So I will stop there and take some questions. Please, we, we welcome questions from the audience. Anyone have one they're burning on? Thanks so much for an amazing talk. I was curious on where you ended with the scenarios. Given all of the uncertainty, I wondered, I mean, I'm sure it was a super challenging process, but given how the pandemic has played out globally, did it impact any one of these scenarios more or less than you would have thought now that we're three plus years? In reality, it probably affected every part of this product. It affected how we could engage the world to gather ideas because if I remember correctly, in January of 2020, I had just done a tour of parts of East Asia and I had sent one of my senior analysts to, he was in Taiwan a couple of weeks after that and I had to yank him back. Just like here and everywhere around the country and much of the world, we sent people home. Strangely, the intelligence community did not have a work from home policy. We go into work every single day and we had no capability to do that. We had to pivot on a dime Fortunately, this product allows for a lot of research not sitting in our building in classified spaces. But we didn't have a process. We didn't have a policy. And then we had to find out, how do we engage all these people? I remember we had a huge conference with 30 renowned international relations scholars planned for the first week of April. I had never used Zoom before. I loaded it myself, bought it myself, and called up all of these you know, scholars and said, we're going to try this thing called Zoom. And it was the very first one we did. So I think the pandemic affected who we talked to, how we gathered information, how we constructed the book. So I, I see it reverberating in almost every chapter. But as I talked about with tragedy and mobilization, it very specifically factored into how we had conversations about that. Because we thought, how do you have a grand groundswell that mobilizes and coalesces the world if we can't do that now. So we had to make it, as I said, we had to make that worse. Did it make us a little bit more concerned about global challenges to come? Absolutely. Other questions, please. Here's a question I have. Because this report is only produced every four years, and it, it seems to me both the extent and the pace of change is accelerating. I know you don't want to hear this. Do you put out, would someone ask that you should put this out more frequently or are there interim products that do that? So we're producing analysis every day. Sometimes I think of this as a side job. But what I didn't go into is the team that I run, Strategic Futures, doesn't just do this product. 
we cover the broad range of transnational issues. So we have climate, environmental issues, resource issues, health security, governance, transnational repression is a big topic these days, international institutions, gender issues, identity issues, broad geopolitics, all of these fall under our unit. So if some, some of this was then tailored into things that directly went into policy discussions, like discussions for the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, as well as the national intelligence strategy. So there are more updated pieces, but they're not ones we're putting out publicly. Other questions, please. Hi, thank you very much. Around the world, are there a lot of big cities that have the type of phenomenon going on here in America where there's a great deal of shoplifting and refusal by officials to prosecute the thieves? And as a consequence, in Chicago just recently, they elected a new mayor who's even perceived to be worse on that subject. And so a couple of days ago, Walmart announced they're closing four superstores in Chicago because they just can't put up with it. But is that happening all over the world? That's an interesting bit of data to look at. I actually haven't ever looked at shoplifting and theft as an indicator variable for economic challenges and discontent. I don't know how widespread that data would be outside of more advanced economies. So we might have a data challenge in actually using that as, again, an indicator. So I don't know. Thank you very much for a very informative presentation. I was wondering if your group studies or takes looks at the impact of religion and faith traditions across our world. And what, if any, insights do you gain from that? Yes. And yes. During my first tour in this unit in 0809, I remember a colleague at the time, he actually wrote a paper on religion as a national security issue and how do we think about it broadly and conceptually, not just, not just thinking about terrorism coming out of kind of Islamic communities, but how do we much more think about religion as both a stabilizing force in the world, as an opportunity for solving global challenges, as well as, in many cases, a, a dividing element within our communities. We've internally done a lot of looks at this. I know my predecessor actually, I think she even went to the Vatican and had a number of meetings with cardinals there in preparation for the book that came before mine. It was on my list. COVID kept me from the Vatican. And, uh, but we did, I, we actually did a day-long conference to think about kind of religious trends and both how religious dynamics are improving, again, improving conditions within communities and in some cases doing exactly the opposite. And we tried to take a broad view from looking at, you know, Christian communities of all types, Islamic communities, Hindu communities, Jewish communities, and doing a bit of kind of comparative analysis of that. It's woven in different places, particularly in the societal section, but we didn't call out a specific religion section this time. They did in the previous edition. And we have been talking about that. One of the things we've been thinking about for this 2045, which we've just kicked off the analysis for, is to think about that intersection of religion, ethics, artificial intelligence, and how are those going to overlay? What challenges will those create? How do we think about those? as well as other technologies. We did spend a lot of time talking about bio and ideas of changing what it means to be human. And what are those ethical debates that are likely to emerge? And what if different countries establish different rules and standards for applying different types of biotechnology? Some say ethically we're not going there, where others embrace it immediately. What does that do to power differences? What does that do to societies? What does that do to inequality within and between states? There's just so many issues to unpack. It hurts my head to think about. Thanks for coming to talk. So my question is about, in terms of the U.S. national security, how you think about the in, like internal threats versus external threats we've seen in the U.S., right? Things like January 6th insurrection and all sorts of political unrest and not just divisiveness, but political violence. So how do you think about which one of those feels like a bigger issue or because they're so different, how you think about trying to fix each of those issues? Because of different mandates from Congress, we structurally have kind of some very specific lines in 
mission areas and responsibility. So if we're looking at challenges domestically to the U.S. that are not externally driven or broad transnational, um, those are going to be handled by Homeland Security and FBI and local authorities. Some of that will cross into what like the National Counterterrorism Center would do. But again, they are much more externally focused. But some of those threats that come from abroad obviously do end up here. And we have rigorous ways of having dialogues about that and sharing information. And those have really improved since 9-11. Other questions? There we go. Thank you for the presentation. My question is about how the kind of challenges, excuse me, the kind of challenges that you've had when it comes to predicting these scenarios, especially with big tech companies being involved, they have the same kind of data that, not the same kind of data, but we're in a very nascent stage of rapid technology improvements at this point. How could, how challenging was it to predict these scenarios given that anything could happen? Because we've only recently seen how the attention economy conglomerates have been using data to polarize countries. That never happened before. So what are some of the challenges that you think came up when you were trying to predict these scenarios? Again, I try never to use the word prediction. These scenarios are really just a starting point. They're the beginning of a conversation, a much more dialectical process. We're n we didn't get the future right with any of these. We know that. They're just to stimulate the imagination and a conversation. Yes, you could think one is much more likely than another. But also, you might think they're all terrible and want to fight me on it. Wonderful. That's the point, right? The point is engage with it, think about it, respond to it. Tell, send me an email, tell me what I miss. As we've been making the list of things to have conferences, uh, commissions, and papers on, data is such a big one. And again, I'm probably a, more of a Luddite than anything else. So, my ability as an individual to really understand the explosion of data, who has who's gathering the data, who has control of the data, how can the data be used? How does that data factor into increasing abilities in artificial intelligence? And does that actually create better or worse responses that we're getting in? So there's a lot of questions. I think we're only just even beginning to scratch the surface of the issue of data going forward. And again, Governments don't have a monopoly on that, right? Major corporations have much more access and are in many ways creating a lot of that data. I think one of the challenges going forward, particularly as we're divided between open societies and closed authoritarian systems, is the ability to use that data will be different and the rules and behavior with that data will be different. So what does that do to that future we're looking at? Again, right now, I can just sit here and list questions more than I have answers. Was there another question up top? I'll throw another one in here. We know that the federal government has a very significant problem with an aging workforce. You've been 31 years yourself in government. As, as we look I don't feel old yet. No, you're not, not compared to <laughs> the folks I'm talking about. What would your pitch be? We have a lot of students with us today. What would your pitch be to, to people who are considering a career in government or in the intelligence community? There's a lot of distrust in government. You've been in it for yep. a long time. You've seen how it works. What would you say to a student who's contemplating a career or some service in the federal government, maybe in the intel community? Yeah. It's the first thing I always say when I'm asked this question is I'm a very fortunate person because I have never had a boring day at work in 31 years. There aren't a lot of people that I could ask that question of. Have you ever had a boring day at work? Never. I've never had enough hours in the day. The questions are so immense. The topics are so fascinating. The enjoyment of any job in the profession is partly what you do and the things you work on. And the other part, and sometimes more important, are the people. And the people I have had the great joy and benefit of being surrounded by over these past three decades have been some of the most kind of interesting, passionate, well-read, intelligent, committed people I've ever had the chance to meet. You come out of universities and you think, wow, 
I'm going to miss it because I have these stimulating conversations, not just in the classroom, but then I have them in the hallway and I've met faculty who are engaging in these interesting research projects. I'm, you know, coming out of some grade schools, like I wouldn't, where do you see that again? The intelligence community is the place to find that because we gather expertise. I work with a PhD in biotechnology, experts in, on the environment, near native Mandarin speakers, the things my colleagues have done, I'm in awe, whoops, I'm in awe of because it's amazing the level of expertise, but also the conversation around, I was going to say the coffee pot, but we've become herbal tea drinkers in my group lately. We stand at the teapot and have these fascinating conversations. So the topics are interesting. The challenges are hard. But the mission is really, truly important, and it keeps people coming back. Can most of them probably make a lot more money in the private sector? Without a doubt. But I think the work and then the community keeps them there. Thank you. If there are no more further questions, I have a very small token of our appreciation from the University of Notre Dame. I know we have very stringent government ethical standards. <laughs> yes. I guarantee this does not violate any of them. Thank you. But please join me in thanking, thanking Maria. Thank you. Can do this the right.